Would you be willing to stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of God as we read nine verses together this morning out of Matthew chapter 15? Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let us pray. Lord, we love you this morning. And we are so honored to come together and to worship You. God, we're grateful to be able to say the Lord is my shepherd. Father, this morning I ask that You'd anoint me now to preach Your Word in the power and demonstration of the Holy Ghost. I pray that You'd fill this place with Your presence. God, that You would move amongst us in a very powerful, supernatural way. I pray that lives would be changed. God, I pray this morning that any and every person here under the sound of my voice who is not truly born again, that today they would be saved. That you would do that supernatural work of opening their spiritual eyes to see you. And Father, that they would run to you with their hearts, Father, and find salvation this morning. God, I just ask that you have your way, that you'd be lifted up and exalted. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning on the thought of tradition versus life. Tradition versus life. Just a very quick background of the text that we read. There was a tradition of the Jews that they had to wash a certain way before they ate. And really the reason that the tradition came up uh, was because when they would go to the market and purchase some of their food, The word bread here often refers to more than bread. When we think about a loaf of bread, um, bread and meat, those two words encompassed all types of food. And so it says they do not wash before eating bread. The idea was that when they had to go to town to buy bread, that they would have to come in contact with Samaritans and Gentiles. And that just being in the market and that, and that just purchasing items from people who were pagans, who were Samaritans, which the Jews viewed as a half-breed of Jews, that it caused them to be unclean. And so they had to wash ceremonially to become clean before eating. And they noticed Jesus' disciples didn't do this. And obviously, Jesus didn't either. And so they eventually approaching, and they say, hey, how come your disciples aren't keeping the traditions of the elders? Now, they they considered tradition a very important thing. Yet, a tradition is something that is handed down orally. It is something, it is not necessarily written, it is not a commandment of God, it it is something that is handed down from generation to generation. And they took their traditions very seriously. Jesus says to them, listen, you break the commandments of God to keep your traditions. And when you, when Jesus is talking here about um, you not honoring your father and mother, you have to understand that what these, especially the Pharisees that Jesus was addressing, what these Pharisees were doing was rather than taking the money they had to help support their mother and father in their elderly years, They were taking that money that should have been used to help support their mother and father, and they were giving it to the church. Thing is, they were the leaders of the church. So really, it was just like funneling it right back to themselves. And then they were telling their mother and father, well, we can't really take care of you because 
we've given everything we have to the church. We're so spiritual. Jesus says, you break the commandment of God to honor yourself, and yet you want to come to me and talk about my disciples not keeping your traditions. This morning I want to talk about traditions and just say that it's possible that traditions can become a dangerous thing. It's possible that traditions can become so important to us that at times we will even break our own convictions. At times, we will even stifle our own beliefs to keep the traditions of someone else. And I want us to honestly ask ourselves over the next several weeks, are we in any way allowing tradition to stifle the life of God out of our lives and out of the church? Most of the time in the New Testament, Tradition is looked at as a bad thing, as we see here in Matthew chapter 15. Look what Peter says about it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. He says the aimless conduct. In other words, there's really no goal of it. It doesn't take you anywhere. It does not hit the mark. There's no aim. It's just the traditions of your fathers. And they were not able to redeem you. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14. The next two passages come from the Apostle Paul, and they're important. I'll share with you why in just a moment, but let's look at them together. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul tells us, that he was zealous about these traditions, the traditions of the fathers, not the, not the commands of God, but tr- zealous for the traditions of, of the Jewish faith that were handed down by their forefathers. In other words, Paul said, I understood them. I knew them and I was zealous about them. Colossians 2 in verse 8. Are you faster than me? Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul says, Beware lest anybody deceive you through tradition and not the principles of Christ. Tradition is something we have to be willing to look at. And I'm going to tell you, as your pastor, I've personally grappled with, what are the traditions that we have that might stifle the work of God? Now, tradition is not always bad. It's not always negative. But it can become something that we become so attached to that when something doesn't happen traditionally the way it's supposed to happen, somehow something inside of us takes over and we begin to want to hold on to our traditions. I ask the question to anybody that's been here for six months, what do you expect on a Sunday morning service? If you were to write down, what do you expect? It would go like this. One song, everybody's seated, announcements, handshaking, few songs, offering, few more songs, we're seated, pastor preaches, well, dismisses Children's Church. Pastor preaches, gives the altar call, they sing a song, we go home. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. There's nothing instinctively wrong about that lineup. The problem is, is when we begin to think church is about a service, an order of, of, of service. And we can become so attached to an order of service that we begin to push God right out the doors. Now, I want to say that traditions are not always bad. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2.15. I'm going to show you two places. Well, 
really two places where we see tradition is not a bad thing. But the first of the two both come from Second Thessalonians. Paul's writing to the same church. Let's look at Second Thessalonians 2.15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. I want to explain something about the writings of Paul. Remember, traditions are something that are handed down by word. In the very first century, the primitive church, they did not have beautifully bound Bibles for each and every person in their congregation to carry around inside of their neat little Bible covers with handles. Much of what they knew was what had been taught them by the apostles. And so when he says to hold fast to the traditions, he is specifically referencing the things they were taught by the apostles. It does not necessarily mean the order of service when he says hold fast to the traditions. But we see here him telling the Thessalonians and then just a few short paragraphs later in chapter 3 and verse 6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. I want you to see something here, and this is very important when you understand the New Testament idea of keeping traditions. The tradition, while he doesn't name it for us, the tradition that they were breaking, he defines with the words, Walking in disorderly conduct. We see the tradition of the New Testament church was a tradition of living a godly life in front of an onlooking world. It wasn't an order of service. It wasn't that at this moment on service, the people come forward and they take the communion this way, or this is how we pray, or this is how long we preach, or this is how we sing songs. That was not the traditions being referenced here. It was a way of life. And when he tells them to, to, uh, that they're walking disorderly, not according to the tradition. So we see the tradition that he's talking about isn't something they do every week when they come to service. It is a way of life. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. And I'm going to turn there uh, because I want you, I'm going to comment on it a little bit further. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. First of all, verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. What I want you to know about tradition, to anybody that does try to tell you the New Testament's all about traditions, I've had people try to tell me we need to be Catholic, we need to be Greek Orthodox, we need to be this, we need to be that, because the Bible talks about traditions. First of all, only two times in the entire Bible, twice New Testament, does it speak about tradition in a positive light. And I just read to you both of them. Paul writing to the Thessalonian church, and here Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he praises them, because they kept the traditions just as I delivered them to you, Look what the tradition is. Let's read further. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For a woman is not covered, let her... if. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Okay. So, he comes up with that after saying, keep the traditions. What Paul's talking about there is in the church, and we're going to look at this together in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In the church, there was men and women prophesying. There was stuff going on in the church. It didn't look a lot like our church does today, where you got one speaker and 150 people listening. And Paul said, here's how this needs to work. And I'm not going in... This morning I have no plan on giving a defense on what this looks like. 
But I just want you to understand that what Paul was addressing here was the freedom of church. And he's basically saying, look, when you all have church and you get together and you've got men prophesying and women prophesying and you've got the life of God flowing through the church, there needs to be some order. And the order needs to resemble God's design for the family. God is the one that's ultimately in charge. Men need to be men. They need to be head of their household, and that needs to be reflected in the church. And women need to be women. They need to be uh, submissive to their husbands, and they need, to, uh, they, they need to be willing to come into that authority of the home. And if we don't have that in the church, it's chaos. That's the tradition that he's talking about here. Now, what I want us to see, it's not how often you take communion. It's not the tradition of what the person speaking does or does not wear. It's not the tradition of what songs did they sing, what songs did they not sing. It's about, it's about order in the church. Now, I want you to look at something in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I forgot to give this to you, Meg. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I forgot to give it to you because I forgot to give it to me. It's not in my notes either. Um, let's start in verse 29. No, sorry, verse 23 through 29. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Actually, I want to read through a few more verses. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For, listen to this, you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. All right. Just so nobody leaves here mad this morning, I'm not planning on speaking on tongues, but uh, planning on preaching on speaking on tongues, but I do want to address it. What I want you to see is that speaking in tongues happened in the context of the first century church. But Paul clearly says it shouldn't happen with everybody doing it at the same time. That would be chaos. People would think you were nuts. They would think you were crazy. That's what Paul says. I have a lot of really good, strong Christian Pentecostal friends. And I'm not slamming the Pentecostal denomination this morning. I will say on the authority of the Word of God, that having multitudes of people speaking in tongues at the same time is clearly taught against right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. However, it's not taught against, period, and that it's wrong. Here's what I want you to see, though, about the text. It's not about speaking in tongues. Here's what I want you to see. This church was a lively church. That's what I want you to see. Everybody had something to say. So what it said that all may prophesy. It was not the traditional, lifeless, totally structured service that the American church has come to know. It wasn't. It was lively. It was so lively, most of you would be terrified of it. You'd find a way to say that it was devilish and that it was chaos, and you'd go find somewhere else where it was so traditional and so structured that you felt safe knowing nothing strange is ever going to happen here. I don't want that to become us. That's what I fear. These people, many were prophesying. Many were speaking. 
One of the reasons I think that we don't see that in, in our modern day churches, number one, we're not a spiritual people. I'm not opposed to open up the floor and letting somebody else share what God's put on their heart. My problem is people who spend less than five minutes a day reading and people who spend five, less than five minutes a day praying thinking that somehow God's speaking to them to get up and share something with the church. You need to be in the Word. You need to be spending time with God. Trust me, if you're hearing from God, if you are, God will be convicting you to be in His Word if you're not. And so... We kind of live in such a shallow Christianity where only two or three people in the church are, are dedicated to studying the Word of God in it. Five days out of a week at a minimum. Spending 15 to 20 minutes studying the Word. 15 to 20 minutes at a minimum in prayer. If you were to take a survey of the percentage of people who fall into that category, it's probably about 2 to 3%. And so it would make sense those are the only people that... God probably has up to say anything. But I want to tell you that wasn't what church looked like. Church was a lively place. It was full of life. This morning I want to look at that. What is life? You know, why do, why do we as men cling on to traditions? Why do we look for traditions? Why do we build traditions? I think we like safety. We hate the unknown. That's why we honestly resist walking by faith. But the the Bible says that we walk by faith, not by sight. We want to know what's going to happen, what it's going to look like. You know what we've done in a modern day culture? We've decided that solid move of God, what it looks like is a preacher who preaches really loud, and I can, some of you know that. It looks like a worship team that's got the full band and the crowd's on their feet and, and, and everybody's got their hands in the air and so... What we do is we mimic that and we just try to make it better and better and better. And so the more powerful the preacher preaches, the more louder that he preaches, the, the more people that are singing, the more instruments they have, the more singers they have, the greater experience with God we have. And those things become idols. And those things can actually, they can move us emotionally and listen to, but there's a difference between being moved emotionally and God falling on a place and changing life forever. There is a difference. And to the unspiritual man or woman, they often don't discern the difference between the two. I want us as a church to honestly ask ourselves, are we showing up to, to experience God? I want us, and I'm not saying we're going to do this forever, but I'm going to tell you for the next six weeks, I'm going to change things up here. If you're a latecomer who likes to miss the first three songs so that you don't have to give the offering, if that's you, you're going to miss the sermon one of these days because I'm just going to get up and start. Who says we have to sing songs before I preach? Why does worship have to happen before and not after we hear the Word of God preached? One of these Sundays, I'm just going to do it. And we'll do worship on the backside. Why do I have to be the only one that preaches a sermon? One of these mornings, I'm going to preach and so is somebody else. It might be you if you laugh. It'll probably be Branson. <laughs> but it might be you. On Father's Day, I have something very special planned with Doug. Doug and I are going to sit up here in front of the congregation and we're going to discuss manhood and fatherhood and, and the problem in this fatherless society. And we're going to go back and forth. We're going to talk about it. We're going to look at how do we reach this fatherless society. I just want to do some things to kind of shake us up a little bit. And I'm not saying it's going to be that way forever. My prayer is that you're challenged and that you're willing to ask yourself if it makes you uncomfortable... Why? Why does this make me uncomfortable? Why do I think it has to be this way? And my ultimate goal over the next six weeks is not that we decide, hey, we're going to be a different church, but that we understand that Christianity is unique and that God is living and that real life, it's not a cookie-cutter thing where we do the same thing and look the same way all the time. And I hope that that ends up affecting you and your personal life, that you realize to be a great, solid 
man or woman of God who's on fire for God, making a difference for all of eternity, doesn't mean that you have to look like me, walk like me, talk like me, and be like me. I can be me and you be you. Let's just let the life of God flow out of us. Amen? So what is life? Look at John chapter 10 and verse 10. Talking about tradition versus life today. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus said, I came that they may have life. We have to know this about our Savior. We have to know this about our Lord. Jesus did not come to give us a superior set of rules that were better than the old way of worship. Jesus did not come to introduce a new system of church that was better than what was going on in the synagogue across the street. He came not to give us another religious form. He came not to give us a host of religious duties to keep. He came to give us life. That's what He came to give, life. I want you to think for a moment. If He came to give life, that obviously means we don't have it until He gives it. I never would have believed that when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. Somebody would have told me I didn't know what life was. I would have thought, I, I wouldn't have, I just would have thought they were crazy. But the reality is, I didn't know what life was. I had no life at all. I was a walking dead man. Literally, spiritually speaking, dead. No realization that God was real, that God existed, that there was a purpose for my life. It was all about me. And because that's all I knew, I thought that was life. Jesus told us, I came that you may have life. The church. Guys, this should be a place of life. We should be a people of life. We should be a people that when the world looks at us, they see the life of Christ. And I, and I, I think we do a decent job. Trust me when I tell you this morning, this is not a uh, chastening of Crossway Church. It's not. I think we do a pretty good job here being a people of life. I think when someone is truly spiritually thirsty and hungry for something real, that they can come, and if they're looking for it, they'll find it. I, granted, we are a church, which means we are a people. And because we are a people, it means we're fallen. And because we're fallen, it means we, make, we do bad things sometimes. We're not a perfect church, and if you come with a negative attitude and a picking spirit, you'll find something wrong. It won't take long. You typically find what you're looking for. But generally speaking, I think we are a place of life. I think that people can see life in us, but I just want to say that is the goal. To be able to show the life of Christ to a lost and dying world. What is life? It's something, first of all, that we do not possess without Him. Whatever else you want to call it, I call it an existence. When I talk about life before Christ, that's kind of an oxymoron. There wasn't life before Christ. It was just an existence. It was just a selfish, all-about-me existence. When the world looks at the Christian man or woman, when the world looks at the Christian marriage, when the world looks at the Christian family, the world should see something that it doesn't see everywhere else. It should see life. Can I say that life is real? When I think about how do I put this into words, right? We're, we are, as pastors and as people, we want to you know, paint some grandiose picture that seems higher than anything could ever be attained. And, and then we applaud that and say, well, that's Christ. That's life. But no, life is real. Sometimes life is hard. Having the life of Christ does not mean we don't go through difficulty and suffering. It doesn't mean that we never have questions that we just don't know where the answers are. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we don't get pink slips like everybody else. It doesn't mean that, that, that all is well. It doesn't mean that mothers and fathers never bury their children. It doesn't mean that nobody gets sick. It doesn't mean that people don't die. It, that's not what life means. It means that somehow in the midst of this fallen world, when everything's going wrong, 
the life of God in me, which is steady and steadfast, is helping me rise above it. And I've got life. I've got peace. I've got joy in the midst of the storm. And the world should be able to look at us and see that. What is life? It is the ability to live selflessly. It's the ability to truly forgive freely. Life is the ability to love our enemies. Life is the desire to do good to all people. And I want to say cautiously, if you don't live selflessly, if you don't forgive freely, if you don't love your enemies, and if you don't have a desire to do good to all people, it's not the life of Christ that's ruling your heart. Because those things are the life of Christ. It was His life. It was what He did when He was here. He showed us in action. He preached it in word. That is the life of Christ. And when we truly receive life and we realize, guys, church is not about going through motions. It's not about the religiousness of, of believing something and being associated with a group of religious people. No, no, no. The church of the living God is about the life of Christ in us penetrating this world and changing our lives and changing others. Life is what Christ desires to give. This morning, rather than me just tell you about life, I have some people I've asked to come tell you about what happened in their life when they experienced life. And so I'm going to ask Bob Hilliard, wherever you're at, if you make your way up this morning, Bob's going to tell you about the life of Christ this morning in his life. We'll go with the white mic. Morning. Um, Joplin asked me to uh, two different questions: what life was like before Christ, and then life after Christ. And um, man, it's it's not difficult, but it's pretty difficult to explain how it was. Um, like he said, it was uh, it was all about me prior to Jesus coming into my heart, and um, you know I spent most of my time trying to fill a spot in my heart in the the way I was created if uh, you know I didn't understand this until after I was saved but we are made in the image of Christ and inside of you if you're not saved is a god-shaped hole it's what we lost in the garden of eden and after that you will spend all of your life just like I did, trying to put anything and everything in that hole to bring you a fulfillment. Everything. Drugs. Alcohol. Football. Sex. Whatever it may be. You'll cram it in that hole and try and create this uh, happiness because that's what we do as Americans especially. We look for happiness. And I wanted to be happy. But the whole time I was looking for happiness, what I was really missing was peace. And towards the end of my life before Christ, when I started coming here, it was pretty funny actually, we came here because we thought our children needed it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We said we want our children to be raised in a Christian environment. I was raised in a Christian environment that was steeped in tradition. The Lutheran church is not that far off the Catholic church. We stand, we sit, we kneel, we stand, we do the Kyrie, all that kind of junk. I knew who Christ was. I knew what He did. But I didn't want a part of it because I wanted to fulfill what was in here instead of what He wanted to give me. So after Christ, um, the biggest thing that I can tell you was peace. You know, I had an experience with Jesus shortly after I was saved in between Hayes, Kansas, and Salina. I won't go into a lot of detail, but He asked me to fast for three days from eating meat. Never fasted in my entire life. 
Never. And I didn't tell him what I was really wanting. He asked me what I needed. And my response was, was typically a prideful answer. It was, well, you're God. You should know. I'm saved. (laughs) But in the fast, he gave me what I needed. That was the first time that really, well, that was the second time I really understood that he was real. It wasn't. It wasn't just a fictitious thing that took place. Right. Amen. But uh, three to five minutes, uh, life after Christ, is it's not about me anymore. It's about everybody else. It's about um, Him using me to spread His, His gospel and me submitting to that. And what's crazy about that is I'm okay with that. I, w- I can guarantee you I've been asked to be a preacher, not by him, by God. And I would have never done that. I would be terrified to stand in front of people and say anything. Just standing on the stage would make me tremble. But when I preach, when I speak about God's Word, oh no. It's, it's incredible. But it's, uh, it's peace. It's joy. It fills my heart. For my wife... Those things, they, they correct because, not because I did it, but because He corrected the inside. Amen. He brought something to life. Amen. So. Thank you, God. Amen. Meg, come on up. This is Meg Hernandez. If you did not know. Sister of Chris Hernandez. Um, When he asked me to keep this between three and five minutes, that's really hard to do when you're talking about what God's done in your life, what he's done in my life at least. Um, Basically, before I made the decision to follow Jesus, I had no idea how lost I was. I didn't always feel lost, and I wasn't always unhappy, but there was never any meaning to my existence. It was just an extremely shallow life. And although not everyone struggles with depression so deep, you question taking your own life. That's where my life constantly circled back to, always asking, what's the point? On the day that I decided to follow Christ, I realized that I truly wasn't just struggling with the question of death. I was already dead. When I turned my life over to Jesus and began following him, I felt life for the first time. My life now has purpose. There isn't the question of what's the point because he is the point. My worst days now far outshine my best days before Christ. Because now I know no matter what comes in my way, I am secure in the confidence that I am a child of God, bought with the blood of Jesus. On top of that, not only did he love me in my brokenness, he came to heal me of my brokenness and give me new life. So how can I keep silent? Why would I want to keep that to myself? God has set me free to live in freedom and to help show others what that looks like. Loving others the way Jesus loves is not always easy, and honestly, it's impossible to do on our own. But the beautiful thing is, when God commands us to love others, he also provides that love through us. It is amazing the love that God has given me for strangers that I never had before. I actually have an illustration that, um, of just how God, this God-given love, and how it's so personal, and he hears what you need to share that love. Um, is Corrie Ten Boom. She lived through the Holocaust and basically watched her entire family die. Just a cruel, humiliating death. And afterwards, she just started a ministry sharing how God's love shines through the darkest hours. Um, and she has the authority to say that going through a concentration camp. Um, she was speaking at a church one day, and she saw one of the soldiers, the SS soldiers that had been at a camp that she was at who had made her and her sister just strip down in this whole room and just beat them. Um, So I'm going to read it apart from her book. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fourline, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people about um, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. 
I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again I breathed in a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while in my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. I share this because there are people in my life that have hurt me very badly, and I never dreamed that I would ever love them, let alone forgive them. Um, But Romans 6.4 says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we we also should walk in newness of life. And it is a new life. Um, It's only through him that I can forgive these people and love them, and he can give that to anyone. Um, This is what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to seek us, but to save us and to enable us to shine a light into the darkness and to help lead anyone and everyone to the life of victory that he offers freely. Amen. Jesse Smith. Wow. When Joplin called me to, to do this, the first thing I want to say was no. But knowing what Christ has done for me, I, I can't say no. He didn't say no. I'm not going to say no. Uh, before I accepted Christ, I, I lived a life that was for me, myself. I had a girlfriend and kids during part of them years. And, yeah, they had what they needed and I took care of them. But when it came to their happiness, mine was first. Even when it came to people that hurt me or did me wrong, it was, it was all about revenge and getting back at them. My life was full of sin. I was headed down a, a dead-end road quickly, and I didn't even know it. Uh, I had a friend I worked with, came to this church, Dwayne Houston, kept inviting me to church. I'm like, yeah, I'll go sometime. Well, eventually I made that step, and I came. Heard a message that really touched my heart. And uh, I'm real nervous. I'm sorry. I, I skipped something in that first part. But uh, uh, I was my life was to a point where it was just totally empty. And I was using things of this world to fill that. It's like Bob said. And every time, same result. Emptiness. No satisfaction whatsoever. But back to coming to this church, uh, I took that step and asked Christ into my life. And everything changed. The way I, I love my wife, the way I love my kids, the way I love my enemy, like Meg said. And knowing that I come last and Christ is first. He died for me, died for all of us. And, I just, and I'm, I'm proud to be up here to say that. You know, I thank him for that. So, thank you. Annalise Eirich. Us women are organized. We have our notes. <laughs> well, I got really excited when um, Joplin asked me to give my testimony Um, because I realized I'd never really had the opportunity to share my testimony. Um, And then I got really bummed because he said three to five minutes, and like Meg said, that's not long enough, but I'm going to try to give you the condensed version. Um, I was raised in church, and I was a really, really good child. I did good at school, and I really was pretty good for my mom at home. Um, I went to, I was invited to go to church camp with the Pleasant View Baptist um, youth group, I think the summer before my freshman year, and That was the first time that I can ever really remember being taught that I, a morally good Methodist, was in need, was a sinner in need of a Savior, and that I needed to accept him in order to go to heaven. I don't know if they didn't teach me that growing up Methodist or that I just didn't listen, but that was the first time I had a a real experience with God. So I um, entered high school and did my best to be holy and live by holiness. Um, 
which was proved harder by getting um, giving my heart away too soon. I got into a really serious relationship. But other than that, I really just wasn't tempted by the things of this world, the partying and things like that that all my friends did until college. Went off to college and um, left what little of God I had back home. So I thought he was with me all along. I can see that now. But by today's standards, I would have considered myself a Christian still even then. And by society standards, I was just your ordinary sorority girl that was off sowing her wild oats. Looking back now, though, I can see that um, my life was pretty out of control. And I'm so thankful that I just survived myself. But God. I was married just a year and a half later. And after um, just another two years of marriage, we welcomed triplet boys into our home. It was finally time for us to settle down and grow up, sort of. Um, I, being raised in church, and my husband was raised in church, decided when they were about two years old that we needed to raise our our children in church also. Branson Sears came to our home around that time, funny God's timing, came to our home and just gave us this awesome testimony. And Branson was, um, we used to party with Branson and hang out with him. And actually, it's so funny because when we, Moved back from the Navy, I told my husband, I don't want Branson Sears in our home. He scares me. Not Branson scares me, but people that know Branson, and I don't want to be associated with Branson. We have babies in our home, and I'm sorry, I love Branson, but he's not welcome in our home right now. And then he comes over and gives us his testimony. It was so cool to see, um, you know, the the change in his life. And so I thought, okay, we'll start with his church. Um, Needless to say, we started um, with this church, and we never, we stopped looking after just our first visit. But this testimony is not about how I found Crossway Church. It's about how I found Jesus. We attended this church for at least a year before I surrendered my life to Christ. Uh, I was still walking in that gray area on the fence, and that's a terrible place to be. I didn't feel like I belonged in the bars that we would still um, visit occasionally if we had the chance. But I just never really had that huge, that was God moment. And honestly, I was afraid and ashamed to even admit this, but I questioned if God even existed. I was fearful, though, of finding out too late what the correct answer would be, and so I decided to err on the side of caution. Eventually, I did a little bit of my own research to satisfy my inquisitive mind and decided that this was a safe place to be. Then one night during revival, I had what I came home and explained to my husband, a feeling that I had been zapped by the Holy Spirit. God sent his presence over me to help me decide which it was going to be once and for all, him or the world. I decided I had had enough of living on the fence. It was time for me to finally surrender everything to God. And while I have stumbled over the past few years, I can honestly say that that's the only decision I have ever made that I have not once questioned. I've slowly lost some friends since that time. We're still friendly, but we've lost that deep friendship that we used to have. They don't understand my legalistic ways, and I desire more godly friendships now. But let me tell you what I've gained. I've gained a better marriage, one where I look for God to change me instead of my husband. I've gained a new love for my children. It brings me to tears to think about what an angry stressed out, perfectionist mother I was the first few years of their life. And I wish more than anything I could go back and do it all over again, this time with Jesus. I laugh sometimes when my kids tell me I'm being a mean mom now, and of course I still lose my temper and do things I regret. But they, when they tell me I'm being a mean mom, I just say, Honey, you should have known me before Jesus, okay? <laughs> they don't really remember it, but I sure do. <laughs> And I gained a new purpose, one where I wished for my life to glorify God and not myself. Honestly, sometimes it's overwhelming to me, and I would be lying to you if I left this part out. Sometimes I feel like it's just overwhelming. God just brings, keeps bringing up these little sins, things that I would have never thought were sin before Christ. And I just feel like I'm getting nitpicked, and he just wants every single little part of me. But I remember that's just the devil trying me to give up and be overwhelmed, and that God is patient with me. And that I don't need to change myself. I just need to seek more of God and let God change me. So if anyone out there is like me, grew up in church, had some wild oats to sow, and maybe just thought you'd grow up out of it, and maybe you did, but you still don't understand why you don't have a life that reflects Christ, I want to leave you with this. The turning point for me was, after a touch from the Holy Spirit, of course, was that I couldn't please both God and man. I could not be shy about my faith. 
like the society wants us to be. I couldn't live for myself and be satisfied in him. I challenge you to find anything in this book that tells you otherwise. No, that book challenges us to live a deliberate life for Christ, to be set apart from this world. It challenges you to be a disciple of Christ, constantly being taught and constantly teaching. It challenges you to walk with God, not just daily, but minutely. And I'm sorry to disappoint some of you, but it really just takes being weird for Jesus. I know that that's uncomfortable, and we don't like to do that. But if the world doesn't think that you're weird or fanatical in your faith, then you're probably missing a huge part of this Christianity thing. There was so much more to God than just going to church on a Sunday and being a morally good person. There is Jesus. I had asked four people to share their story this morning, and we are right on time, right on schedule. But this morning, Deuce walked in, and um, I want to say before I call him up, you can go ahead and come up. I want to say before I turn the mic over to him that um, Deuce and his wife, Lauren, contacted me because they needed to get married, needed somewhere to get married, needed someone to marry them. And I kind of have a sneaky marriage counseling thing that I do. That, um, And God's honest truth is, I think in the last three, three years, I've had five families get saved as a result of going through the marriage counseling. And um, amen. This is one of them. And uh, God's radically changed your life, I'm, and I, he did not have the notice that everyone else did. He walked in, and I said, hey, you're talking this morning. So, from Louisiana, would you make Deuce welcome? Thank y'all. Um, like Pastor said, you know, I don't have a piece of paper or anything like that, but that doesn't matter because God's got it. Um Life before Christ for me, it was it was a whirlwind. Um, it was all about myself. I was so selfish. The things that I would do, the thoughts that I would have, it was all about me, 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 me. I didn't have a vision, or I thought I had a vision. I thought I knew what I was going to do. Uh, you know, I thought I'd be making a million dollars a year or so playing on the PGA Tour. That was my plan. You know, I had it. Um, I'd get there by drinking, playing golf. Nothing else mattered. I was raised in church. Um... And, you know, I, I knew God, and I knew he was real, but I would have enough time whenever I was done doing what I had to do that then I could go get, get to know God better. So anyway, all that did was, you know, it was, it was just a downward spiral, the drinking, the drugs, the sex. Um, you know, and, and through all that, God was with me. But I, did, I didn't think he was. I, I thought I was by myself. I was living for myself. Um, and... and like Brother Joplin said, well, rewind real quick. To get to that point to where I got married, I had to meet my wife. Well, the way I met my wife wasn't how you should. It, was, uh, it wasn't a planned thing. I just broke up with a relationship. Wasn't looking for anything. Um, and God sends... Lauren along. Well, through that whole thing, we were living how we weren't supposed to. We were living together, you know, and, and we weren't doing what God wanted us to do. It was all about us, and we couldn't get along, and I mean, I wonder why that was. There's all this chaos going on. Then she gets pregnant. We've got to get married. What are we going to do? And it's just constant chaos before Christ. Everything is chaotic, even, even though you may think that it's not. It's chaotic. And as, you know, we're, Lauren gets pregnant, we get in touch with Brother Joplin, it all works, we get a, a, a wedding together real quick, um, and all that works out. Well, we come to church here, and Lauren's all about it, I'm not so much all about it, um, I enjoyed the people here, you know, it was, it was a, a social thing for me. Well, there would even be times where my wife would go to church and I wouldn't go. Well, at those times is when things started to get really chaotic. And 
that whole time, you know, I'm, I, I can feel God pulling me, pulling me to him, but I don't want nothing to do with it. You know, my wife can do it. My son can go. That's awesome. I want my son to be in church. But I don't know about me right now. Well, anyway, I go off. I go home for a weekend, come back. My wife gets saved in the morning, have no idea. And I come back that night, and there was a special speaker here. They were singing. Um, the guy from Winfield or something? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, and, <laughs> and I come back that night after partying all weekend. And she talks me into going to church. And I go and I come and I, I do my thing. I sit and I socialize. Well, my aha moment happened that night. That was the night that I got saved. Hung over. So if you think God can't do it whenever He wants, that's that's when He shows off. And I was hung over. Now I say all that to say this. Life's awesome now. It's so different now. Y'all, three years ago, I was probably one of the worst persons you would have met. I didn't care. I loved my wife. I thought I did. But I really wasn't worried about how she felt. I was going to raise my son how I thought he needed to be raised. But there wasn't any love in my home. There is so much love and so much life in my home because of God's Word. And it is living. You can read one verse a hundred times and get a hundred different meanings from it that God sent you. Y'all, just the life that is in God is awesome. He has brought my life so far in three years was it three weeks ago, four weeks ago? I preached my first sermon in our youth group at our church. I mean, three years ago I was doing drugs and drinking, y'all. So God's Word is alive and just, it's not always easy. And there is still chaos. But God can bring you above that chaos and let you understand things. And God will give you a vision. He'll give you a vision. To where you're going. He may not reveal it all to you at once, but he's going to give you what you can handle right now. And he's going to show you where he wants you to go. And just stay on that path and don't get off of it because God's word is living and he's right beside you all the time. I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team to come. And as they do, I just have a few closing thoughts. First of all, thank you to those of you that shared your testimony with us this morning. What an awesome picture of how God changes lives. Because He is a life-changing God. He's the life-giver. Jesus said not only in John chapter 10, verse 10, that He came to give life, but He came to give it abundantly. And I, I want you to think about that. God wants us to have life abundantly. The Christian life, when it's lived in the power of Christ, and when we truly live it out and walk it out the way He wants it to be done, it's an abundant life, my friends. It's not a drudgeful life. It is abundant life, full of life. My prayer is that we as a church be a people of that type of life. My prayer is that that life penetrates everything that we do. Our youth group, our children's ministries, our outreaches, the services that we have every week, the way that we worship God, that we understand... What God's called us to and what God's given us and, and this relationship with Jesus and this thing we call Christianity, it's not about another formal religion and, and, and way of service. It's about the life of Christ in us. Amen. This morning, if you're here and you would say, Preacher, I don't have that life. I want to talk to two people this morning. The one that would say, I don't have that life. And I'm like a lot of those people that were testifying that before Christ, that's me. I, and, and yeah, I believe God's real, but I've never really repented and accepted the life of Christ and, and turned towards Him. And I'm done just existing. Today's the day of salvation. I want to encourage you, if that's you, I want to encourage you when we give an altar call to come forward Find a place to pray. Tell God about your sins. He knows about them. Confess them to Him. He already knows. There's nothing you can hide from Him. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to change your life. 
and, and turn to Him. Make the decision to repent of your sins and follow Him. Thank you.